worldly idealism, social mission, and the kingdom not of this world. A letter to Thomas Merton by Eugene Rose, better known by his name in monasticism, Father Seraphim Rose. What follows is a reading of the letter in its entirety, beginning and ending with valuable context from the biography of Father Seraphim, Father Seraphim Rose, His Life and Works by Hieromonk Damascene, finishing with a quote by Father Seraphim from his book, Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future. Eugene wrote this letter in 1962, the same year he was received into the Orthodox Church after an arduous and painful journey in search of the truth, which he ultimately realized is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose body is the Holy Orthodox Church. The ideas set forth in this letter were written at the same time Eugene was writing his desired magnum opus, The Kingdom of Man and the Kingdom of God, specifically the chapter titled New Christianity. Neither this chapter nor the entire book were finished, but in addition to this letter to Merton, what was completed was the chapter on nihilism, available from St. Herman Press under the title Nihilism, the Root of the Revolution of the Modern Age. From his biography of Father Seraphim Rose, Abbot Damascene writes, Having long been on the rise, Catholic humanism would soon change the face of the Roman Church at the Second Vatican Council. Thomas Merton, already famous as a proponent of contemplative spirituality, had not only caught the spirit of the age, but was to some extent directing its course. He became an outspoken advocate of the new Christianity of Pope John XXIII, and, like the religionless humanism from which it was copied, he upheld man's reason, with or without faith in God, as the key to global felicity. Pope John's optimism, Merton wrote, was really something new in Christian thought because he expressed the unequivocal hope that a world of ordinary men, a world in which many men were not Christians or even believers in God, might still be a world of peace if men would deal with one another on the basis of their God-given reason and with respect for their inalienable rights. In recent articles, Merton had affirmed in no uncertain words, war must be abolished, a world government must be established, a truly international authority is the only answer to the critical needs and desperate problems of man. He spoke of a possible birth agony of a new world, of the duty of Christians today to perform the patient, heroic task of building a world that will thrive in unity and peace. And in this connection, he spoke of Christ, the Prince of Peace. Eugene wrote to Merton that, in light of what seemed to him to be the plain teaching of the universal church, he found such remarks disturbing. In expressing his disagreement, Eugene was challenging but at the same time respectful. He probably took the time to write this letter because he felt that Merton was one who would consider seriously what he had to say. Years later, as we have related, Merton's first book, The Seven-Story Mountain, had made a deep impression on Eugene as a description of a typical modern man who, having experienced the world's delights and discerned their emptiness, had renounced them to seek the world to come. In his unfinished essay on the new Christianity, Eugene had written, 
The tragedy of these times is that men, rediscovering the fact that they require more than earthly bread, turn in their spiritual hunger to what seems to be the renewed Church of Christ, only to find there an insubstantial imitation of genuine spiritual food. Starving men cannot distinguish flavors. It seemed that Merton had done just this. For whatever reason, this monk, having made a sincere monastic beginning in the strict cloistered Trappist order, was now starving for true spiritual life. Grateful to Merton, Eugene hoped to turn him back to his first love. The Letter to Thomas Merton by Eugene Rose Eugene Rose writes, I am a young American convert to Russian orthodoxy, not the vague liberal spirituality of too many modern Russian religious thinkers, but the full ascetic and contemplative orthodoxy of the fathers and saints, who have for some years been studying the spiritual crisis of our time, and am at present writing a book on the subject. In the course of my study, I have had occasion to read the works of a great number of Roman Catholic authors, some of which, those, for example, of Piper, Picard, Gilson, P. de Niloy, P. de Lubac, I have found quite helpful and not, after all, too distant from the orthodox perspective, but others of which I have found quite disturbing in the light of what seems to me the plain teaching of the universal church. I have read several of your works, and especially in some recent articles of yours, I seem to find signs of one of the tendencies in contemporary Roman thought. It exists in orthodoxy too, to be sure. That has most disturbed me. Since you are a Roman monk, I turn to you as to someone likely to clarify the ambiguities I have found in this trend of thought. What I would like to discuss chiefly concerns what might be called the social mission of the Church. In an essay entitled Christian Action in World Crisis, you devote yourself especially to the question of peace. In an age when war has become virtually impossible, this is, of course, of central concern to any Christian, but your remarks particularly on this subject have left me troubled. What, first of all, are the real antagonists of the spiritual warfare of our age? To say Russia and America is, of course, trivial. The enemy, as you say, is in all of us. But, you further say, the enemy is war itself, and its roots, hatred, fear, selfishness, lust. Now I can quite agree with you that war today, at least total war, is quite unjustifiable by any Christian standard, for the simple reason that its unlimited nature escapes measures of any sort. The point in your argument that disturbs me is your statement that the only alternative to such war is peace. The alternative to total war would seem to be total peace. But what does such a peace imply? You say, we must try as best we can to work for the eventual abolition of war. And that is indeed what total peace must be, abolition of war. Not the kind of peace men have known before this, but an entirely new and permanent peace. Such a goal, of course, is quite comprehensible to the modern mentality. Modern political idealism, 
Marxist, and democratic alike has long cherished it. But what of Christianity? And I mean full, uncompromising Christianity, not the humanist idealism that calls itself Christian. Is not Christianity supremely hostile to all forms of idealism, to all reduction of its quite realistic end and means to mere lofty ideas? Is the idea of the abolition of war really different in kind from such other lofty aims as the abolition of disease, of suffering, of sin, of death? All of these ideals have enlisted the enthusiasm of some modern idealist or other, but it is quite clear to the Christian that they are secularizations and so perversions of genuine Christian hopes. They can be realized only in Christ, only in his kingdom that is not of this world. When faith in Christ and hope in his kingdom are wanting, when the attempt is made to realize Christian ideals in this world, then there is idolatry, the spirit of Antichrist. Disease, suffering, sin, and death are an unavoidable part of the world we know as a result of the fall. They can only be eliminated by a radical transformation of human nature, a transformation possible only in Christ and fully only after death. I personally think that total peace is, at bottom, a utopian ideal, but the very fact that it seems practical today raises a profounder question. For, to my mind, the profoundest enemy of the church today is not its obvious enemies. War, hatred, atheism, materialism, all the forces of the impersonal that led to inhuman collectivism, tyranny, and misery. These have been with us since the fall, though to be sure, they take an extreme form today. But the apostasy that has led to this obvious and extreme worldliness seems to me to be the prelude to something much worse, and this is the chief subject of my letter. The hope for peace is a part of a larger context of renewed idealism that has come out of the Second World War and the tensions of the post-war world, an idealism that has, especially in the last five or ten years, captured the minds of men, particularly the young, all over the world, and inspired them with an enthusiasm that has expressed itself concretely, and often quite selflessly, in action. The hope that underlies this idealism is the hope that men can, after all, live together in peace and brotherhood, in a just social order, and that this end can be realized through non-violent means that are not incompatible with that end. This goal seems like the virtual revelation of a new world to all those weary of the misery and chaos that have marked the end of the old world, that hollow modern world that seems now to have finally or almost, played out its awful possibilities, and at the same time it seems like something quite attainable by moral means, something previous modern idealisms have not been. You yourself, indeed, speak of a possible birth agony of a new world, of the duty of Christians today to perform the patient, heroic task of building a world that will thrive in unity and peace, even in this connection of Christ, the Prince of Peace. The question that sorely troubles me about all this, is it really Christianity, or is it still only idealism? And can it be both, 
Is a Christian idealism possible? You speak of Christian action, the Christian who manifests the truth of the gospel in social action, not only in prayer and penance, but also in his political commitments and in all the social responsibilities. Well, I certainly will say nothing against that. If Christian truth does not shine through in all that one does, to that extent one is failing to be a Christian. And if one is called to a political vocation, one's action in that area too must be Christian. But, if I am not mistaken, your words imply something more than that. Namely, that now more than ever before, we need Christians working in the social and political sphere to realize there the truth of the gospel. But why, if Christ's kingdom is not of this world? Is there really a Christian social message? Or is not that rather a result of the one Christian activity, working out one's salvation with diligence? I by no means advocate a practice of Christianity in isolation. All Christianity, even that of the hermit, is a social Christianity. But that is only as context, not as end. The church is in society because men are in society. But the end of the church is the transformation of men, not society. It is a good thing if a society and government profess genuine Christianity, if its institutions are informed by Christianity, because an example is given thereby to the men who are a part of that society. But a Christian society is not an end in itself, but simply a result of the fact that Christian men live in society. I do not, of course, deny that there is such a thing as a Christian social action. What I question is its nature. When I feed my hungry brother, this is a Christian act and a preaching of the kingdom that needs no words. It is done for the personal reason that my brother, he who stands before me at this moment, is hungry, and it is a Christian act because my brother is, in some sense, Christ. But, if I generalize from this case and embark on a political crusade to abolish the evil of hunger, that is something entirely different. Though individuals who participate in such a crusade may act in a perfectly Christian way, the whole project, and precisely because it is a project, a thing of human planning, has become wrapped in a kind of cloak of idealism. A few more examples. The efficiency of modern medicines adds nothing to the fulfillment of the commandment to comfort the sick. If they are available, fine. But it is not Christian to think our act is better because it is more efficient or because it benefits more people. That again is idealism. I need hardly mention the fact that medicines can become, indeed, a substitute for Christian comfort when the mind of the practitioner becomes too engrossed in efficiency and the research scientist searching for a cure for cancer is not doing anything specifically Christian at all, but something technical and neutral. Brotherhood is something that happens, right here and now, in whatever circumstances God places me, between me and my brother. But when I begin to preach the ideal of brotherhood and go out deliberately to practice it, I am in danger of losing it altogether. Even if, especially if, 
I make use of a seemingly Christian nonviolence and passive resistance in this or in any other cause. Let me, before I call it a Christian act, carefully ask myself whether its end is merely a lofty worldly ideal or something greater. St. Paul, to take a pretty clear example, did not tell slaves to revolt non-violently. He told them not to revolt at all, but to concern themselves with something much more important. The peace of Christ, being in the heart, does not necessarily, in our fallen world, bring about outward peace, and I would wonder if it has any connection at all with the ideal of the abolition of war. The difference between organized charity and Christian charity needs no comment. There may be, I would not have written this letter if I did not hope there was, a kind of true, though so to speak subterranean ecumenism between separated Christians, especially in times of persecution. But that has nothing remotely to do with the activities of any world council of churches. You may, from these examples, I hope, understand the doubts I entertain about the resurgence of seemingly Christian ideals in our time. I say doubts, for there is nothing intrinsically evil about any of these crusades, and there are involved in them all quite sincere and fervent Christians who are really preaching the gospel. But as I say, there is a kind of cloak of idealism wrapped about them all, a cloak that seems to be drawing them into its own quite independent service, without thereby negating, of course, the personal Christian acts performed under their auspices. What service is this? The placating of the modern sense of idealism by translating inward and Christian truths into outward, and at best, semi-Christian ideals. And we must be realistic enough to see that the general effect on the minds of people both inside and outside these movements, both inside and outside the church, is precisely to place emphasis upon the realization of outward ideals, thus obscuring inward truths. And since this emphasis has been made, the path is all too short to the palpable falsehood that, quote, doing good is the real purpose of Christianity anyway, and the only basis in which all Christians can unite, while dogma and liturgy and the like are purely personal matters which tend more to separate than unite, unquote. How many of those indeed, even Catholic and Orthodox, who are participating in the world of social Christianity today, do not believe that this is really a more perfect and even inward Christianity than a dogmatic, ascetic, and contemplative Christianity that doesn't get such obvious results. I have, before this, been reproached by Catholics for lack of interest in the social mission of the Church, for holding to a one-sided, ascetic, and apocalyptic Christianity. And some Catholic philosophers and theologians have made such accusations against the Orthodox Church itself, accompanied sometimes, if I am not mistaken, by a somewhat patronizing tone that assumes the Church is rather backward or out of date about such things. Having always been repressed by the state, and used to looking at the world through the all-too-unworldly eyes of the monk. Far be it for me to presume to speak for the church, but I can at least speak of some of the things I think I have learned from her. 
You may legitimately ask me what, if I am skeptical of social Christianity, though of course I do not wish it abolished or given to the devil. I am merely pointing out its ambivalence. What I advocate as Christian action in the midst of the crisis of the age with its urgent alternatives. First and foremost, I radically question the emphasis upon action itself, upon projects and planning, upon concern with the social and what man can do about it, all of which acts to the detriment of acceptance of the given, of what God gives us at this moment, as well as of allowing His will to be done, not ours. I do not propose a total withdrawal from politics and social work by all Christians. No arbitrary rule can govern that. It is up to the individual conscience. But in any case, if many may still be called to work for justice, peace, unity, brotherhood in the world, and these are all, in this generalized, ideal form, external and worldly goals, is it not at least as good a thing to be called to the totally unequivocal work of the kingdom, to challenge all worldly ideals, and preach the only needful gospel, repent, for the kingdom is at hand? You yourself quite rightly say of America and Russia, the enemy is not just on one side or the other, the enemy is on both sides. Is it not possible to deepen this perception? and apply it to those other seemingly ultimate alternatives, war and peace? Is one really any more possible for a Christian than the other, if the peace is a total, i.e., idealistic, peace? And does not the recognition of these two equally unacceptable alternatives lead us back to a genuine third way, one that will never become popular because it is not new, not modern, above all, not idealistic, a Christianity that has as its end neither worldly peace nor war, but a kingdom not of this world. This is nothing new, as you say, and a world that imagines itself post-Christian is tired of it. It is true that when we, as Christians, speak to our brothers, we often seem to be faced with a blank wall of unwillingness even to listen. And being human, we may be made somewhat desperate by this lack of response. But what can be done about this? Shall we give up speaking about what our contemporaries do not want to hear, and join them in the pursuit of social goals which, since they are not specifically Christian, can be sought by non-Christians too? That seems to me an abdication of our responsibility as Christians. I think the central need of our time is not in the least different from what it has always been since Christ came. It lies, not in the area of political commitments and social responsibilities, but precisely in prayer and penance, and fasting, and preaching of the true kingdom. The only social responsibility of a Christian is to live, wherever and with whomever he may be, the life of faith, for his own salvation and as an example to others. If in doing so we help to ameliorate or abolish a social evil, that is a good thing, but that is not our goal. If we become desperate when our life and our words fail to convert others to the true kingdom, that comes from lack of faith. 
If we would live our faith more deeply, we would need to speak of it less. You speak of the necessity, not just to speak the truth of Christianity, but to embody Christian truth in action. To me, this means precisely the life I have just described, a life infused with faith in Christ and hope in His kingdom, not of this world. But the life you seem to describe is one very much involved in the things of this world. I cannot help but regard it as an outward adaptation of true Christian inwardness. Modern idealism, which is devoted to the realization of the idolatrous kingdom of man, has long been making its influence felt in Christian circles. But only in quite recent years has this influence begun to bear real fruit within the womb of the church itself. I think there can be no question but that we are witnessing the birth pangs of something that, to the true Christian, is indeed pregnant with frightful possibilities. A new Christianity, a Christianity that claims to be inward, but is entirely too concerned with outward result. A Christianity even that cannot really believe in peace and brotherhood unless it sees them generalized and universally applied, not in some seemingly remote other world, but here and now. This kind of Christianity says that private virtue is not enough, obviously relying on a Protestantized understanding of virtue, since everything the true Christian does is felt by all in the mystical body. Nothing done in Christ is done for oneself alone, but not enough for what? The answer to that, I think, is clear. For the transformation of the world, the definitive realization of Christianity in the social and political order. And this is idolatry. The kingdom is not of this world. To think or hope that Christianity can be outwardly successful in this world is a denial of all that Christ and his prophets have said of the future of the church. Christianity can be successful on one condition, that of renouncing, or conveniently forgetting, the true kingdom and seeking to build up a kingdom in the world. The earthly kingdom is precisely the goal of the modern mentality. The building of it is the meaning of the modern age. It is not Christian. As Christians, we know whose kingdom it is. And what so greatly troubles me is that today Christians, Catholic and Orthodox alike, are themselves joining, often quite unaware of the fact, often with the best possible intentions, in the building of this new Babel. The modern idealism that hopes for heaven on earth hopes likewise for the vague transformation of man the ideal of the superman, in diverse forms, conscious or not, which, however absurd, has a great appeal to a mentality that has been trained to believe in evolution and progress. And let not contemporary despair make us think that hope in the worldly future is dead. Despair over the future is only possible for someone who still wants to believe in it. And indeed, Mingled with contemporary despair is a great sense of expectation, a will to believe that the future ideal can, somehow, be realized. The power 
of the impersonal and inhuman has ruled the first part of our century of crisis. A vague existential spirit, semi- or pseudo-religious, idealistic and practical at the same time, but never otherworldly, seems destined to rule the last part of this century. They are two stages of the same disease, modern humanism, the disease caused by trusting in the world and in man while ignoring Christ, except to borrow his name as a convenient symbol for men who, after all, cannot quite forget him, as well as to seduce those who still wish to serve him. Christianity became a crusade. Christ became an idea, both in the service of a world transformed by scientific and social techniques and a man virtually deified by the awakening of a new consciousness. This lies before us. Communism, it seems clear, is nearing a transformation itself, a humanizing, a spiritualizing, and of this Boris Pasternak is a sign given in advance. He does not reject the revolution, but only wants it humanized. The democracies, by a different path, are approaching the same goal. Everywhere prophets, semi- or pseudo-Christians like Berdyaev and Tolstoy, more explicit pagans like D. H. Lawrence, Henry Miller, Kazantzakis, as well as the legions of occultists, astrologers, spiritualists, and millennialists, all herald the birth of a new age. Protestants, and then more and more Catholics and Orthodox, are caught up in this enthusiasm and envisage their own age of ecumenical unity and harmony, some being so bold and so blasphemous as to call it a third age of the descent of the Holy Spirit, a la D. H. Lawrence, Berdyaev, and ultimately Joachim of Flores. An age of peace may come to weary yet apocalyptically anxious man, but what can the Christians say of such peace. It will not be the peace of Christ. It is but fantasy to imagine a sudden, universal conversion of men to full Christian faith, and without such faith his peace cannot come. And any human peace will only be the prelude to the outburst of the only and real war of our age, the war of Christ against all the powers of Satan, the war of Christians who look only for the kingdom not of this world, against all those, pagan or pseudo-Christian, who look only for a worldly kingdom, a kingdom of man. It was only after I had completed the preceding pages that I saw your article in Commonweal, Nuclear War and Christian Responsibility. There you bring up the topic to which I was planning to devote the rest of this letter, the Apocalypse. There is, of course, nothing of which it is more dangerous to speak. Futile and over-literal speculation on apocalyptic events is an only too obvious cause of spiritual harm. And no less so, I think, is the facile way in which many of our contemporaries refer to the apocalyptic character of the times, and in so doing raise in others deep fears and hopes which their own vague pronouncements are far from satisfying. If a Christian is going to speak of the apocalypse at all, it is quite clear that in this, as in everything else, his words must be sober, 
as precise as possible and fully in accord with the universal teaching of the Church. In this case, I can see no reason why Latin and Orthodox testimony should be substantially different. The prophetic texts are the possession alike of East and West. The commentaries and statements of the Fathers, both Greek and Latin, on these texts are explicit, detailed, and in mutual agreement. And the tradition of the Fathers has been affirmed, after the schism, by both the Orthodox and Latin churches. In the latter, most authoritatively, I would presume, in the person of Thomas Aquinas. The recent book of Joseph Piper, The End of Time, basing itself almost entirely on Western sources, is, so far as I know, in no essential point at variance with Orthodox tradition. It is rather a shock, in fact, to read in Father Darcy's Meaning and Matter of History that not all Christian scholars would accept such a literal acceptance of apocalyptic literature. Perhaps not, indeed, but that is to say no more than that, just as many Jews did not recognize the Christ of their prophecies, so will many Christians fail to discern the signs of the times with regard to the Antichrist and the end of time. Many Christians have departed so far from tradition as to believe that the Antichrist will be no actual man, but a vague spirit only, much as many modern Jews have transformed their messianic hope into belief in a mere messianic age. But this failure of many Christians is itself part of the prophecies concerning the falling away, even within the church itself. As Blessed Jerome said, Many, esteemed as the patriarch, shall fall. For the Antichrist is a deceiver, and too few Christians are prepared for his deceptions. It is thus dangerous to speak of apocalyptic things without speaking of the Antichrist and his spirit. It is easy for the weakest understanding today to see something apocalyptic in the fantastic destructive powers man now possesses. But worldly power is only one aspect of the reign of the Antichrist. Great deceptiveness, such as to deceive, if possible, even the elect, is another and less obvious one. You speak, like many today, of the possible destruction of the human race. Is this not a rather strong phrase for a Christian to use? Does it not, again, place too much emphasis on the power of man? Does it not, above all, overlook the prophecies of what must come to pass before God, who, of course, alone can destroy the human race he has created, calls men into his kingdom? In no uncertain words you affirm once more, war must be abolished, a world government must be established. Is not must a rather strong word? It is indeed a symptom of the apocalyptic character of the age that the only practical solution to the present crisis, the abolition of war, should at the same time be, as I think, totally idealistic. To some, this situation gives rise to thoughts of a new age or a new world. To me, it suggests the possibility that we are, in actual fact, on the threshold of the last days, when all courses of worldly action begin to become impossible. A new world. This is a phrase I have noticed. 
that you yourself use. In The Living Bread, you even suggest that we are witnessing the dawn of a light that has never been seen before. We live perhaps on the threshold of the greatest Eucharistic era of the world, the era that may well witness the final union of mankind. You ask, to be sure, but without giving an answer, will this visible union be a political one? And you even suggest that perhaps the last age of all will be Eucharistic in the sense that the Church herself will give the glory and praise to God by being put to the cross. To Christians who possess the word of Christ and his prophets and saints concerning the last days, I do not see how there can be any perhaps in the matter. The political union of mankind, however legitimate it may be as a political goal, can only end in the reign of Antichrist. The church, beyond all doubt, will be crucified after a good many of the faithful have betrayed her through the deceptions of the Antichrist. I by no means preach an imminent reign of Antichrist, an apocalypse that is possible, of course, and Christians at all times must be prepared for it, but no one knows the hour. What I do wish to emphasize is the fact, I take it so, that, spiritually speaking, contemporary man in his despair of the present and still present hope in the future confronted with ultimate alternatives and seemingly apocalyptic social and scientific transformations and evolutionary hope, has never been more receptive to the advent of a pseudo-messiah, a supreme problem-solver, an inspirer of the bright human idealism. In times like these, I think the Christian should be wary of involving himself in the tangled web of political activity, lest in striving for too much he lose all. Boldness in faith and in preaching the kingdom, above all by the example of one's life. To be sure, there is not nearly enough of that today. But caution in worldly planning, of which we have a superfluity, even, in fact, most of all, in the interest of high ideals. Above all, the Christian in the contemporary world must show his brothers that all the problems of the age are of no consequence beside the single central problem of man, death, and its answer, Christ. Despite what you have said about the staleness of Christianity to contemporary man, I think that Christians who speak of this problem and in their lives show that they actually believe all that superstition about the other world I think they have something new to say to contemporary man. It has been my own experience that serious young people are tired of Christianity precisely because they think it is an idealism that hypocritically doesn't live up to its ideals. Of course, they don't believe in the other world either, but for all they know, neither do Christians. I think Christians have of late become entirely too sophisticated too anxious to feel at home in the world by accommodating their faith to passing fashions of thought. So contemporary Christians become existential, speak of the here and now of faith and spiritual things. Well, that is fine as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. Our hope as Christians cannot be reduced to the abstract, but neither can it be reduced to the concrete. 
We believe and hope in a kingdom no one living has ever seen. Our faith and hope are totally impossible in the eyes of the world. Well then, let us tell the world that we believe the impossible. It has been my experience that contemporary men want to believe, not little, but much. Having abandoned Christian faith, nothing can seem too fantastic to them. Nothing can seem too much to hope for, hence the idealism of today's youth. For myself, my own faith grew rather gradually, as a more or less existential thing, until the stunning experience of meeting a Christian, a young Russian monk, for whom nothing mattered but the kingdom of the world to come. Let the contemporary sophisticate prattle of the childishness of seeking future rewards and all the rest. Life after death is all that matters. And hope in it so fires the true believer. He who knows that the way to it is through the hard discipline of the church, not through mere enthusiasm, that he is all the more in the present, both in himself and as an example, than the existentialist who renounces the future to live in the present. The future kingdom has not been abandoned by modern Christians, but it has been so toned down that one wonders how strong the faith of Christians is particularly all the involvement of Christians in the projects of social idealism, seems to me a way of saying, you, the worldly, are right. Our kingdom, not of this world, is so distant, and we can't seem to get it across to you. So we will join you in building something we can actually see, something better than Christ and his kingdom, a reign of peace, justice, brotherhood on earth. This is a new Christianity. A refinement, it seems to me, of the Christianity of the Grand Inquisitor of Dostoevsky. And what of the old Christianity of private virtue? Why has it become so stale? Because, I think, Christians have lost their faith. The outward gospel of social idealism is a symptom of this loss of faith. What is needed is not more busyness, but a deeper penetration within. Not less fasting, but more. Not more action, but prayer and penance. If Christians really live the Christian hope and the full path of unification that looks to its fulfillment, instead of the easy compromise that most laymen today think sufficient, and doesn't the new Christianity tell them that working for social ideals is really more important than following the Christian discipline, if Christians in their daily life were really on fire with love of God and zeal for his kingdom not of this world, then everything else needful would follow of itself. We can hardly hope that such a life will be too widespread in our time, or even, perhaps, that its example will make many converts, surely not as many as will the new gospel. For social idealism is a part of the spirit of the age, while genuine Christian otherworldliness is most emphatically not. Two, it is more difficult and often less certain of itself. So weak is our faith. Altogether, in short, an unappealing goal for outwardly-minded modern man. All of this is inconsequential. Ours it is to live the full Christian life. The fruit of it is in God's hands.
Well, I have said what I wanted to say. I should be very grateful to receive a reply from you if you think my remarks worth replying to. And if you do reply, I hope you will be as frank as I have tried to be. This is the only kind of ecumenical dialogue of which I am capable. And if it seems more like a challenge to combat, I hope that will not deter you. My criticisms, I am sure you know, are directed not at you, but at your words, or what I have made of them. Yours in Christ, Eugene Rose Abbot Damascene of Platina writes, If Eugene ever sent his letter to Thomas Merton, no reply from the latter has been preserved. In succeeding years, Eugene was to watch with sadness as the consequences of Merton's disturbing orientation played themselves out. In 1966, Merton formally rejected the outlook he had held 25 years earlier, when he had entered the monastery and written the seven-story mountain. He mocked what he felt to be his former delusion in renouncing the world, believing this to be the part of the negative, world-denying Christianity that had existed throughout the centuries, but was now outmoded, ready to be replaced by the new vision of Pope John XXIII. In outlining his new way of thinking, Merton said that the true duty of the Christian was to choose the world. The tragedy of Thomas Merton, and such it was, no matter what the world may try to make of him, bore witness to Eugene's statement that the outward gospel of social idealism is a symptom of loss of faith. At the same time that Merton made a break with the tenets of his younger days, he began to take his spiritual search outside Christianity and into Eastern religions. At first, Eugene hoped that this search would free him from the straitjacket of Roman Catholic institutionalism with which he was struggling as a monk, and would lead him, as it had Eugene himself, to the Eastern, mystical dimension of Christianity, orthodoxy. But such was not the case. Merton's investigation of Buddhism and Hinduism only led him deeper into them. Following from his church's striving for universality in the spiritual field, he gradually lost his faith in the uniqueness of Christian truth. Starving men cannot distinguish flavors. By the time of his famous pilgrimage to Hindu and Buddhist centers of Asia, Merton viewed Christianity as but one path among many. He said he felt more rapport with Buddhists than with Roman Catholics, and expressed his desire to find a Tibetan guru and go in for Nyingmapa Tantric initiation. One can imagine where Merton's course would have taken him and his millions of admirers had he been able to finish his Asian pilgrimage and return to America. When he died suddenly in Bangkok after lecturing at a conference of United Religions in Calcutta, Eugene felt that he had been mercifully stopped by God's providence. With sorrow, he remarked to Gleb on the fate of this man, who had once given him hope, hope that it was indeed possible for a modern man to live for the otherworldly kingdom of Christ. Eugene was now going in a direction opposite to the one Merton had taken at the end of his life. For Merton, pagan Asia was clear, pure, complete. It needs nothing. 
But Eugene, from his own years and searching in Buddhism, had already felt most excruciatingly that it still lacked the most essential thing of all. Merton, who had reached a spiritual impasse in contemporary Roman Catholicism, believed that he had fully utilized his own tradition and gone beyond it. Eugene, on the other hand, had already experienced the limitations of the non-Christian religions which Merton had been exploring. He had already gone beyond them to find, for the first time in his life, joy and spiritual regeneration in Jesus Christ, and his growth within the Orthodox tradition had only begun. As Father Seraphim Rose wrote later in life, Orthodox Christians, hold fast to the grace which you have. Never let it become a matter of habit. Never measure it by merely human standards or expect it to be logical or comprehensible to those who understand nothing higher than what is human or who think to obtain the grace of the Holy Spirit in some other way than that which the one Church of Christ has handed down to us. True orthodoxy by its very nature must seem totally out of place in these demonic times, a dwindling minority of the despised and foolish, in the midst of a religious revival inspired by another kind of spirit. But let us take comfort from the certain words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let all true Orthodox Christians strengthen themselves for the battle ahead never forgetting that in Christ the victory is already ours. He has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, and that for the sake of the elect he will cut short the days of the last great tribulation. And in truth, if God be for us, who can be against us? Even in the midst of the cruelest temptations, we are commanded to be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let us live even as true Christians of all times have lived, in expectation of the end of all things, and the coming of our dear Savior. For he that giveth testimony of these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.